before I before I pastored, I was a I, I was a general manager for a manufacturing company, a small one. So every once in a while, I ended up with my employees in a vehicle doing a job off-site where we would go and package up something and was particularly sensitive, so I wanted to be there. And it gave me an opportunity to kind of get to know some of my employees. On one particular occasion, I just told, like, we were having a conversation, and um, I told, you know, he asked what my weekend was like, and he said, oh, I just, you know, I went to church. And he was like, oh, that's, that's cool. I'm on Team Jesus, too. Okay, that's an interesting way to put it. I'll, I'll go with that. Okay, you're, you're on Team Jesus. Excellent. We had a brief discussion about it. Wasn't anything uh, much, but just kind of chatted about, oh, you went to this church, and Team Jesus looks like this. That's, that's cool. So uh, a few weeks later, he comes into my office, and he asks for a day off. It was like a random Wednesday in the middle of like some random month, and I was, this is a weird, okay, like, sure, you can have that day off. You know, I'm not going to ask questions. That's great. It just so happened that a few days after that day that he'd taken off, we were again doing a project, so we were in the vehicle together, and I was like, hey, I'm just, I'm just curious, what did you take the day off for? Like, like was there a special event or something? He's like, well, I, I volunteer at an animal shelter, and I work with um, exotic animals, particularly snakes and poisonous spiders. So, like, I discovered a whole lot about him. Right? Uh, okay, great. Do you keep any of those on your person? No. Okay, good. Well, okay, so what was that all about? He's like, well, you see, I was asked if I would go and be a part of some Hindu celebration because snakes are sacred, and so I was asked to dress up as the Hindu god Vishnu, get painted completely blue, put the snake around my neck, and then they would come and worship at my feet and kiss my feet and worship the god Vishnu. Oh, now, the thing that's going through my mind is, um, I thought you were on Team Jesus. I think that's a valid question, don't you? Like, wait a second here. I think following Jesus means something, doesn't it? Like... I think maybe acting as another god and having people worship you probably falls outside of the following Jesus space, right? Okay, yeah. Okay, so like, huh, this is really kind of interesting. But P Paul, in, in his letter to the Philippians, is, is, is now starting to look at, okay, so what does it look like then to follow Jesus. Like I've done my introductory remarks, I've prayed for you, I've talked about my circumstances and my convictions about what that looks like. And now he kind of turns his attention to the Philippian church. He's like, okay, so now I'm going to give you some things to think about. So let's read together. First uh, Philippians chapter 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one faith or in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still 
have. See, Paul, Paul here is attempting to show the Philippians, look, like if, if I was to come and evaluate where you were, if I was to ha- have someone come and say, this is what's happening in the Philippian church, this is, this is what I would look for. It's similar to a teacher moving through a math textbook or something like that and being like, just pausing and being like, you know, you know the provincial that's coming? This is going to be on it. Like, if you want to get this question right, you should highlight it, put asterisks beside it, underline, because this will be on the test. It amazed me how many of my friends afterwards bemoaned the fact that they didn't know that that would be on the test. Right? Like, just like, no, no, the teacher explicitly said, this will be on the test. So you should have, you should know that. I, I was just amazed. But really, really, that, that's what Paul's doing in, in verse Uh, 1 verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That implies that what he's saying is, look, whether I come and look, or whether someone comes with a message about the church at Philippi, that that I would be able to determine whether or not your life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. We need to be careful there. This this word, let your manner of life be worthy, is actually only one word in Greek. It's it's a word that talks about citizenship. The the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. It was actually like a retirement getaway for for, uh, soldiers. There was lots of people who had kind of done their service and now end up there. Uh, Similar to like Harrison or something, like, oh, we're done working. Let's move to a place that's beautiful and and stay there. So that that, that was Philippi. And they knew what citizenship meant. They knew that it came with a cost, that if you wanted to be a good Roman citizen, then you would do particular things, that you would act in a particular way. And this word would be like, yes, you you actually represent what Rome is about. So if you want to be a good Roman citizen, then, then, then this is the word that you would look for people to use. But Paul isn't looking to temporal city citizenship. Later on in Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, no, 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 our citizenship is not here. It's not in Abbotsford, or it's not in Chilliwack, or it's not in Philippi. It's in heaven. So when we talk about then our manner of life, that citizenship being worthy of Christ, it's about does does your life represent the citizenship that you now have in Christ in heaven? Do you represent Jesus well? And we have to be careful though. Sometimes we we can take that to mean Do I measure up to receive the grace that Jesus has bought for me on the cross? But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that if you truly understand the work of Jesus, if you understand his birth, his life, his teaching, his example, his death, his resurrection, his ascension as king on high, if you understand that, that should then be reflected in your life in such a way that people would be able to see that, yeah, that's true. That if they would look at your life, it would be a proper representation of who Jesus was, what he stood for, what he taught. It doesn't 
earn you a, a spot with favor with God. It simply is a means in which people would be able to look at you and say, yeah, he's a Jesus follower. She's a Jesus follower. So, so Paul is looking for the Philippian church to be representatives of Christ, to be ambassadors of Christ to those around them. That is what he's going to use. So what then are those criteria that Paul, should he hear, should he come and visit, should he investigate, that he would be looking for in Philippi? Well, the first is a life of unity. Again, verse 27, only let your manner of life, this citizenship, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That you would stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. See, the first thing that Paul is looking for is that the, the people of Philippi, those that call themselves the, the Christians, those that are part of the church, would then be unified in one spirit, in one mind, in one purpose, that they would stand shoulder to shoulder, working together and be unified. That if someone from the outside would come in, they would say, oh man, this is, this is a well-oiled machine, they are on the same mission. They have the same values. They think the same way. They support each other in unity. And this is, this is something that Jesus prayed for. Just before he went to the cross, he prayed the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, in which he says, I do not ask only for these, that is the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So those who have heard what the disciples have to say and say, yeah, that's true. This is who Jesus is praying about, which means that Jesus is praying about you and me, those of us who have heard the gospel of Jesus and understand what it is and have accepted it into our hearts and uh, trying to live it out as best we can. These words then are Jesus himself saying, this is my prayer for you, that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Jesus' prayer, our Lord's prayer, is that those that would come to know him would stand in unity together, in perfect unity together. For what purpose? So that when the world looks in, they say, ah, God is at work. There's no other explanation 
Our Savior's prayer is that as the church, that we would be unified. Not full of dissension and arguing and muttering, but gathered together in peace, working towards a goal together, standing side by side, supporting one another. Then what does this unity look like? Is it a unity at all cost? Is it a unity on the color of the carpet? What then is this unity? Is it just a beige, let's accept everybody where they are at and not create any difficult conversations? Let's not actually work in people's lives. Let's just all live in, quote, peace and Harmony and just accept each other as we are so that if we just kind of turn a blind eye and have a fake smile, then the world will look upon us and we'll see, oh, there's something good happening there. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's what Paul's doing. If you look at the end of the verse, be in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for, for the faith of the gospel. See, this this unity is towards something, is motivated by something, is rooted in something. It is just not a unity to create acceptance and open doors. It's a purposed, rooted, decisive unity. Our unity is derived from the work and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus. Our unity is rooted in the work, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And our unity is motivated by that same reality. But the God who who came to reconcile us to himself has a purpose and a plan for the world, and his purpose and plan goes through us. That he has given us clear instruction on how we ought to live and how we ought to look and how we ought to live in the world. And that is the unity that we are called to. Recognizing that we are sinners and that he is holy and so we live our lives in submission to what Jesus taught. How Jesus lived. The example that he gave. It's not a beige unity. It's a deeply rooted unity in where we stand side by side for the gospel, in light of the gospel. It's interesting, though, that he kind of qualifies this with two two terms that don't quite stand out in the English. Uh, First, he says, um, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, This is a military term. I know we're Mennonites, so some of us don't believe in the military or what what have you. Paul is using a military term on purpose. He refers to fellow servants later on uh, as as soldiers for Christ. He uses this this imagery of being soldiers for Christ as as, um, a, a regular occurrence 
So this, this term standing firm is, is essentially a we will not give in. We stand side by side, shields at the ready, waiting for the onslaught, and we will not move. We will not give an inch. Think King Leonidas and the Spartan army of 300. The mythical battle of them standing in a pass with this horde of a Persian army coming and everybody thinking we should just give in because they are too great. And there King Leonidas with his 300 Spartans stand shield upon shield upon shield and say, you shall not pass. This is the imagery Paul is looking for, that as the church, we stand on the gospel, on the teaching of Jesus, not wavering. As if in battle. Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul's talking to the Ephesian church, he makes this more clear. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, same word, against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of that battle, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and have done all to stand firm. Paul's call to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Philippi, to the church in Corinth, is take up arms, stand firm. But he's very clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against your neighbor or the guy who plays his music too loud across the street. It's not against a political ideology. It's not against politics. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle against the devil himself. Which means that as the church, that we can be full of grace and mercy and love and kindness towards those who oppose us because the reality is, is that it is the working of that which is behind that we fight. We do not give ground, but we stand graciously against our opponents. Secondly, though, Paul uses the word striving, that you would strive side by side. This this really has connotations of like Olympic athletes. It's actually where we get the word from. Athlete. My cousin-in-law, I've talked about him a few times, he's, he's training to be an Olympic athlete to throw in discus, and I am amazed at the schedule that he keeps in order to train his body to do the task that he wants it to do. 
the kinds of esoteric exercises he does to make sure that that particular muscle, at that particular motion would be at its optimum so that when that disc is let go, it will go as far as it possibly can. This goes from his sleep patterns to his eating patterns through his workout patterns through the things that he does for fun. Everything is geared towards him being able to make this one thing happen. This one little disc move as far as it possibly can. And Paul's calling the Philippian church that you as citizens of heaven are called to have that kind of attitude towards the purpose that you have been called to. God says, I have, I have called you to be witnesses among the nations, to go baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them those are the things that I have commanded you. So you ought to train like an athlete for that. You ought to train your mind to think like God thinks, to know his word, to know what he says and how he says it, to have a heart that is compassionate for the world and understands it, to, to be able to have a reasonable explanation for the thing that you believe, to show why you have a hope. This isn't a passive exercise where we just simply stand there and don't move stubbornly. This is an active engagement in the truth of God that we would know it better, that we would understand it more, that we would hold it more deeply, that the roots would go down farther so that when the winds blow, the tree does not come over. We would have words to speak, that our lives would show what it looks like, that we would put the work in, that those muscles that are weak would start to be strong. Paul's saying, look, if I'm going to come and look to see Philippi, if you're a healthy church, I'm going to look to see if you're striving side by side? Are you putting the effort in to know Jesus better? To know his loves and wants and desires more? That's how I'm going to tell if you're a citizen. Secondly, though, a citizen is someone who has a life of boldness. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of them, uh, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. And not be frightened in anything by your opponents. The implication is that there is something to be afraid of, Right? Like Paul's not saying, look, he's not chiding the, the Philippian church as if they're cowering in fear and saying, look, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's not what he's saying. You know, that, that's something that I had to teach my, my daughter. That dogs are not something to be afraid of. I know the one knocked you over and licked your face, and that was terrible. But like, like you licked your face. It's okay. Dogs aren't there to kill you. It took a long time. Man, that happened at two years old. It took her till like eight before she trusted dogs. Actually, we had to get one. Greatest regret of my life, getting a dog. <clears throat> yeah, this is on camera. Okay, okay. Um, but she was, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's not showing them, look, you don't need to be afraid here. 
He recognizes that, look, there are opponents out there. There is something to be afraid of, but you should not be frightened. My, my brother decided that it was a smart idea to go for a walk in the middle of the woods by himself without anything. We said, that's a bad idea. You should be afraid. You should, you should have a little bit of respect for the world around you. Oh, no, it'll be fine. When he came back, white as a ghost. Oh, what happened? Uh, oh, I saw a cougar. Hmm, yeah, there's something to be afraid of out there. You should be prepared. Paul's saying, look, he's implying that there's something, there's something to be afraid of. There is, there is in your opponent something to be afraid of, either social loss or persecution or ridicule or economic loss, whatever it is. There is something to be afraid of, but a citizen does not act fearful. A citizen is bold. This is, this is what Paul asks the Ephesian church to, to, to pray for him after he talks about them putting on the armor of God so that they can fight this spiritual battle. His, his request to the Ephesian church is this in verse uh, 18 through 20. To, the, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak it. Look, he, he's, he's indicating I'm in prison and I recognize that there is a pressure, there is a fear that if I do that again, I know what it costs me. Every time that I go into a new city and I say, Jesus is king, you need to follow him. What follows is suffering. What follows is persecution and ridicule. There's a list of things, Philippian church, that I could talk about, about how difficult my life has been. In fact, I've been in chains. So my, my request is that you would pray that the Spirit of God would fill me with boldness. Not take away the suffering. Fill me with boldness. This is the same thing that, that happens in the beginning of the church in Acts when Peter comes and proclaims the gospel and 3,000 people come to know Christ that day. The first thing that happens is Peter and John get thrown into prison. And the church recognizes, oh, this comes with a cost. Like if, if I'm going to follow Jesus, when Jesus said, look, pick up your cross and follow me, he wasn't joking this means that there's a cost to come with it. And when Peter and John come out of prison, this is the prayer in Acts chapter 4, 29 to 31, that the church prays. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to, to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would pray for less suffering. Like, I think in that circumstance, what I'm going to pray for is not boldness, but just God, stop the suffering. Stop the persecution. Like if, if you are who you say you are, you can raise people from the dead, you can give people sight, you can make them walk. 
stop suffering. But their prayer is, give us a stiffer spine. How often is that your prayer? How often is that my prayer? Am I faced with an opportunity to talk to my neighbor? That my prayer isn't, oh Lord, let them go inside before I have to say something. Oh, but Jesus, give me boldness. Elliot Clark is a, uh, is a missionary in a, in a Muslim country. He wrote a book called Evangelism as Exiles. He doesn't talk about the country because it's a very sensitive uh, area. So him and, him and his family were there for years. Um, and one, one day, while he was sitting on the couch preparing for this Sunday coming up, um, he heard his wife audibly gasp from the kitchen. And, she, and he thought, oh, maybe she cut herself or something like that, preparing food. And so he kind of raced into the kitchen, and she was just frozen looking out the window. So he kind of came to the window and looked out, and there, sure enough, a few hundred yards away was his son, his 11-year-old son, surrounded by a gang of young boys. Now, this, this gang was the kind of gang that you, you avoid. They were staunch... Muslim followers, and they knew that by the color of your skin, the only reason you were here is because you probably followed Jesus. So when you heard them coming, you did everything you possibly could to get out of the way. For whatever reason, their son ended up in this place, and that the leader, who just kind of stood out just a little bit ahead of everybody else, had a football-sized rock in his hand. You could see that there was tension just in the body language and things that were happening, and they just sat there frozen, not knowing what would happen. All of a sudden, the boys left, and his boy came home, just relieved. They're like, oh, what, what happened? He said, well, I, I just couldn't get out of the way. I didn't, I didn't see them coming, and then, and then they, they kind of got me, and they said, oh, you, you, you're, you're a missionary's kid, aren't you? And he said, yeah. He said, do you, do you believe in Jesus? He said, yeah. Do you believe that he, he rose from the dead? Yeah. Well, I think we should stone you. So I'm going to give you one chance You renounce all of that, or I'm going to throw this rock. And that boy's response, that 11-year-old boy's response was, I told them I was not afraid of them. I told them they could kill me, but that did not matter. Because I would just end up in heaven. Right. A citizen of heaven bold thirdly though a citizen of heaven should expect a life of suffering for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It has been granted to you. 
She should not only believe, but should also suffer. That sounds fun. See, this word granted is really kind of hard. In, in English, the word gift, kind of whether it's good or bad, is going to depend on the gift, right? I could give you a new car. That would be good. I could also give you a cold. That would be bad. Right? Unless you really want to skip work or school or something like that. Every once in a while, Lincoln's like, Dad, I wish I was sick. Then I wouldn't have to go to school. Oh, son, you do not know what you wish for. Right? But it depends on the thing given. In Greek, that's not the case. This word is derived from the verb grace. It has been graced to you. It has been mercifully given to you by a good giver that you should suffer. Uh, let's just skip that. Let's not talk about that. That's clear. Paul's understanding is that not only has it been granted that you would have faith, that you would believe in the work and, and life and death of Jesus, not only that you would have faith and believe in that, but also then that you would suffer for it. There's a gracious gift that God brings into your life. Okay, where does that come from? Well, Matthew 5, 10 to 12, when Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, as he gathers the people around him, and he begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus' teaching is expect it and be blessed for it. And you're like, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that we're all going to suffer. It just means that those that are going to suffer ought to do it in a particular way. Right? I mean, it's only, it's, it's kind of an exclusive space. For those who are persecuted, theirs is given the kingdom of heaven. Okay, okay that's fair. Matthew chapter 10 and John chapter 16, when Jesus is talking to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he says, look, disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And if I, as your master, experience suffering, how much more will you experience it? And in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, in this world you will have tribulation. Disciples, you will have difficulty. You will have strife. You will have suffering and sorrow and pain. And Paul takes this when he's talking to his young protege in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. You want to know if you are a faithful citizen of heaven? 
Where's your suffering at? You're like, but, but how is that possibly a gracious gift? How can Paul possibly look at all of the difficulty in his life, all of the trials in his life? How could Paul possibly say that the cancer or the ALS or the, the financial struggle or the loss of a job or the death of a spouse is, is, is something that, that, is, that we should rejoice over? How is that even possible? That that would be a gift granted of God, that he would have given that to us. Why should we expect it? Why should we see it as good? Well, because it's the means by which our faith is really shown to be true, isn't it? I mean, I could tell you right now, oh, I can do 100 push-ups. It's not true. <laughs> yeah, over a hundred days, maybe. <clears throat> the only way that I'm going to show that is if I get down and actually do it, right? Like I could say I could, like I could play the guitar, but unless I actually pick it up and try, I could say I could sing, but unless I actually sing, it, do it doesn't matter. I have to show that, that I can actually work it out. So a citizen has to flex that, that muscle of faith. And how do we do it? So when we come into difficulty and we look to God for the strength and sustaining that we need. Paul says, look, look, like you want to know if you're a citizen, you stand side by side for the gospel and that comes with a cost. You need to be bold. There is something to be afraid of because it will cost you something. But when you do, when you stand in the face of suffering, you erect a signpost for the world to see. Say, look, God is at work here. I should be despairing, but I have joy. I should be angry, but I am happy and at peace. I should be wavering, but I stand strong because of the faith that I have been given. And that, and that acts as, a, as an encouragement to those around us who are standing side by side. When someone can look across and see you standing there faithful as you seek God's face in the midst of cancer. As you don't know where the next meal is going to come from, but you bow your knee in prayer and say, God, you are the God of provision. And those beside you are encouraged those beside you are strengthened. And in actual fact, you can look back on those and you can say, yeah, you know what? The fruit of the spirit, the fruit of what it means to be a citizen is actually there. I can take Paul's, Paul's list of things and I can put it over my life and I can see that the work of God is here. It is a confirmation to myself that I am saved, that the Spirit of God is working in me. I do not flounder and I'm not tossed by the waves 
of suffering and pain and difficulty, but I have an anchor and a rock in Christ. This is a clear sign to them, he says in verse 28, of their destruction, but of your salvation. See, we erect that signpost and people start to look. How does that work? That's not right. That doesn't work. That doesn't look normal. You should be, you should be weak in the knees. You should be shaking your fist at God. You should be turning your back. Seeing God's providence, he uses suffering to use us as a signpost, as an ambassador to the world to show them what it is that Jesus does and who he is. And in so doing, then they either will be saved or will meet their own condemnation. Because it was so clear who Jesus was and what he does. Nuri was a, uh, a man, a Muslim man who had come to know Jesus in an early age. He spent his time um, evangelizing his Muslim brothers. One, one of the things you had to do in this particular country was you were, you were required to go for military service. So he was in the military, and as soon as he got there, he decided, I'm going to start a Bible study. That's what I'm called to do. So he started to gather around his Muslim friends and started to have a Bible study. One, one day, his commander came to him and said, you need to stop that. He said, no, I, I, I won't. Will continue. It's important. So he continued. That night, the commander dragged him out of his room and beat him to within an inch of his life. Put a gun to his head and then said, you renounce that faith now. He said, I will no, do no such thing. The commander continued to beat him until he was tired and then left what Nuri didn't know was that two Muslim guards were standing in the distance watching this happen they walked over to him they cleaned him up they said I've never witnessed faith like that who's this Jesus that night they gave their lives to Christ because of his boldness, because of his faithfulness, because of his willingness to see suffering and embrace it for the glory of God. Jesus did not mince words when he said, pick up your cross and follow me. For you who lose your life will find it but you who keep your life will lose it. Brothers and sisters, are we, are we citizens of heaven? Do we seek boldness? Do we seek the Spirit's boldness in our lives? Do we stand without fear? Do we stand side by side on the gospel? Do we embrace the suffering that comes because we know that it is the means by which God shows himself glorious in our lives? Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, it's hard. It, it's, it's hard to 
to read a passage like this and understand what it is you've called us to. I'm so grateful, Father, that you've given us Christ as an example and that you've given us your spirit to strengthen us. God, you have not left us to obey you on our own, but you have given us your spirit to give us strength, to guide us, to clarify in our minds um, what you've called us to. And so, Father, I pray, oh God, would you give us boldness? Would your spirit fill us? Would we open our mouths and would we speak your truth and your goodness and your grace to those around us? God, God, would we see the suffering, the persecution, the ostracizing that comes, would we embrace it? Because it is for your glory. So Father, would you do this in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.